As Katie mentioned, tomorrow is Memorial Day. For the last 150 years, our country has set aside some time to, to remember those who have paid the ultimate price. And the, the, the name of the event, the name of the day has changed over the years. The, the timing's changed. But uh, for 150 years, we've paused to remember and reflect and to appreciate those who paid the highest price. And so at the harbor, uh, we spend time on the Sunday, the day before, spend a few moments and recognize that there's some here, probably in this time right now, that have lost loved ones, ones who paid the highest price for the freedom that we have today. So we want to remember that. We want to thank God for, for what we've gained at their sacrifice. We also uh, take a moment to recognize that there are a lot of military families in the harbor right now. And so there are many loved ones that are risking their lives daily now as well. And so if you would bow with me, we'll pray and, and recognize this time. Father, we thank you so, so much for the gain that's come from the 1.1 million Americans who have paid the highest price to help buy and maintain our freedom. We thank you for what we've gained. Help us not take advantage of and, um, and waste the opportunity of living in the land that we live in now that allows us to live uh, with abandon and freedom for you. Help us to live that out, Father. For those in this room, Lord, who have lost a dear loved one who, who's paid the highest price for us. We pray your deep comfort upon them. For those around the globe that have lost a loved one, we pray your comfort upon them. May, may we, the church, may we, the global church, be part of that comfort for them. And then, Father, we recognize that there are many, many military families in the harbor, and there are those who risk their lives daily we pray you would protect them, you would guard them, you would bring them home safely. And Father, all of this, all of this, we, we offer in the name of Jesus and offer to you. Amen. Back many, many years ago when I was in the old business, I, there was a season I worked for a man named Marvin Boyd. He was one of my favorite men in the company I worked for. He had come to us through an acquisition of a major oil company that he had worked for. And so I worked for Marvin Boyd. He a uh, sharp, sharp man. He understood the business very well. He was, <laughs> he was an old guy. He was almost as old as I am now. So he had all this experience and understood the business. And, and he was for us. Those of us that answered to him, reported to him, he wanted us to have a, a great experience. And, and I thought so highly of him. There was one thing missing, though. He had responsibility, but not authority or not power. So the result of that was we would take work to Marvin and if it was good, he would recognize it, he would shape it and develop it, he would try to move it forward. But so many times, because of the, the way that he came to the company, the lack of contacts he had, he had no power to get things carried out. And so we would work hard, we would find some good things, and they would end up on the shelf and often never get done. And, and Marvin's hope was that he could be the kind of leader that would give us a great work experience and the one thing lacking was he didn't have the power to carry that out. And no fault of his own, and he probably suffered more than we did from that. But, but in that season, I worked for Marvin for two or three years, I suppose. Uh, there was this, this gnawing about what was missing. And I would often try to work around him and try to work up the power chain and everything, which usually didn't work well, but there was this deep frustration. So five years passed, and I'm, I'm reporting to uh, Jim McCormick, who's the, the president of the company, and the people that work for me, we all report to him. And Jim McCormick is sharp, he knows the business, he's worked 40 years or whatever, and he has the power to carry things out. And the experience was, was so different 
although his heart was the same as Marvin Boyd's heart. And Jim McCormick wanted us to have a great work experience, but he could deliver it because he had the power to deliver that. It, it made all of the difference in the world. Do you recognize that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, so, so 2,000 years ago, Jesus is talking to a group of Jews called the Sadducees. So their, their primary, fundamental, unique belief was, was that there was no resurrection of the dead. They believed that this life is all there is when you die, that's it, over and done. And so Mark 12, 24, he says to them, your mistake is this. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. You don't know the scriptures. He was saying, if you, if you read the scriptures, if you really knew them, you would understand God says he raises the dead. You would know that. But he didn't stop there and say, your mistake is you don't know the scriptures because there had to be one more thing said. He said, and you also don't know the power of God. He was saying to them, if, if you read the scriptures, you would read the scriptures and think, well, he claims that. But you don't believe he has the power to do that. And you would live just like you're living now. You would live like it's all over when you breathe your last. And, and so last week, we, we began to look at this, and, and uh, we allowed Christ to speak into our lives and penetrate our lives with this message of perhaps my mistake, or perhaps your mistake, is that, that we don't know the Scriptures, perhaps. And we leaned into that, and if you are not uh, deeply studying Scripture now, I suggested the book of James, and many of you have gotten to me, many of you are reading the book of James and, and so we, we talked about the first piece. Today we talk about the second piece, as, as he said, but also you don't know the power of God. And, and I want to encourage you to open up some space for him to speak to you and see if that might be true of you. And, and this is what's at stake of it. God has made a, a bunch of promises. God has, he's expressed his desire of many things for you. Just like Marvin Boyd often expressed a desire for us. He wanted us to have a great work experience. Just Marvin Boyd didn't have the power to deliver it. God's made a ton of promises. I have a book in my backpack now that has like 860 promises of God or something. Can I give you three? Give you three to hang on to that I would say if these three were the only three promises of God, it would be enough to abandon your life to him. And then I'll come back to them at the end. We'll revisit these. So if you're taking notes, three promises of God. Um, and then we'll talk about whether or not we believe he has the power to deliver on these. The first is this. He promises life to the fullest if you follow Jesus. Life to the fullest. John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, A thief comes to rob, kill, and destroy. I came so that everyone would have life and have it in its fullest. And the way the New Living Translation takes that Greek term, it says, To give you the life that is most richly satisfying. He's promising if we follow him, uh, he will give us the best life possible. He's not saying the easiest. He's not saying the, the, like the, you know, the golden path. He's saying, I will give you the best life possible. I promise that to you. Second promise is this. He promises to meet all of your needs if you follow him. Philippians 4.19 says, And this same God who takes care of me will supply all all your needs from his glorious riches which has been given us in Christ Jesus. He promises to meet every single need, not every want, but every single need you ever have if you follow him. And then the third promise is this, is if you follow Jesus, eternity in heaven. Eternity in heaven. Uh, John eleven twenty five. Jesus told her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying and then John 14, he picks up and begins to describe heaven and the heaven he has planned for anyone that follows him. 
And so these three promises of God, again, I'm going to come back at the end and see how much we really believe he has power to deliver on these. The three promises he will give you, he says, Father, he will give you the best life you could have. He'll meet every single need you have. When you breathe your last, you get heaven. Now, if, if you don't believe he has the power to deliver on those, when he gives you the hard commands, what do you do? When he says to you, when he says, lose your life for my sake, and you're thinking, okay, I get it, God really wants to give me the best life, but I don't think he can pull it off. I think he wants to meet my needs. I don't think he has power to do that. I think he wants to give me heaven. I don't think he has power to do that. What do we do when he says, abandon your life for my sake, lose your life for my sake? What do we do? Or if he says, love your enemies, what do we do when that command comes? It's like, we want the best life, and he promises that, but if I begin to love my enemies, does he have the power to still deliver that best life? What about when he says, forgive those who have wronged you? Aren't I making myself vulnerable? Can he really deliver that best life? Can he give that to me? When he says, don't store up your treasures on earth, store them up in heaven, and you're thinking, whoa, wait a minute, I, like, I want the best life on earth? And you're thinking, I'm not sure if he can deliver that. I'm going to have to do a workaround. I mean, I'm going to have to create my own path. But if you and I believe he can deliver that, we believe he has the power, won't we just simply follow every hard command? Are you tracking with me? Do you see what's at stake? If, you, if you're deeply convinced of the ultimate power of God then how you and I follow him will be deeply determined by that. Does that make sense? Are you tracking? Okay, if you're not, uh, I'm going to keep moving, okay? Okay, so here, here's where we're going with this. Okay, I want to look at some of the ways God's power is expressed so you can have some fresh reflection upon that. One is through creation. Matt Hale, our creative guy, has put this video together about some Im- images of creation. Take a look at this and, and think about the power behind creation. mankind has seen God created from nothing every single thing we're still discovering the the great expanse of it with how how far it goes we're still discovering the the sub microscopic uh, details of it we're still discovering all of that and all of it made out of absolutely nothing now what kind of power does it take to create everything that exists out of nothing I found myself thinking of of the old story about a scientist that goes to God and says, God, we really don't need you any longer. 
we've got it all figured out now. We can clone life. We can do organ transplants. We can handle it all. So you're really not needed anymore. And God says to him, well, let me see just how far you've come. How about if we just, both you and I, we both make man, do it the old-fashioned way like I did the first time. Scientist says, no problem, reaches down, grabs a handful of dirt, at which point God says, oh, wait a minute, get your own dirt. All of it out of nothing. I mean, what kind of power is that? Uh, it, It is this infinite power, as Scripture tells us, this power of creation. God still has, God has power over all natural law. If you think with me for a moment, if God created natural law that says he is above it and beyond it, he has the power to, to suspend natural law anytime he wants to. So you read scriptures, and again and again, God does these miracles suspending natural law. The book of Exodus, the people of Israel have been in this horrific slavery for 400 years in Egypt. And this, the stage right now is that the Egyptians are taking their, their sons that are born and drowning them in the Nile River. This horrific slavery, and God says, I'm going to free you. In the process of freeing them, then God... God brings them to the sea, and he parts the sea. He he suspends all the laws of of fluid flow and gravity, and all he parts the sea, creates this dry ground. Two or three million Israelites, they pass across the sea, what was the sea, on dry ground. They turn around, and their captors are pursuing them with all the weaponry that they need to kill all of them. And as they get across what had been dry seabed, suddenly the, the sea collapses on them and drowns them. And God has power to suspend natural law anytime he wants to. Look a little bit farther ahead. Book of Joshua. Uh, the Israelites now have they've approached this um, city of Jericho, and there's this wall around it that archaeologists say was probably 46 feet high. They've done all the work, and they think it's 46 foot high, four-story building. God tells Joshua, march around it so many times, so many days, and when you blow the trumpets, the wall will collapse. How is that supposed to happen? The power to suspend natural law. They do it, the walls collapse in a heartbeat. Again, God has the power to suspend all natural law at any time. Fast forward in the book of Acts, chapter 3. There's this man in Jerusalem. He's 40 years old. He's been lame his entire life. He's begging. Peter and John come up, and he begs for for some money from them. And and Peter says, well, we don't have money. We'll give you what we have. And, and Peter says, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. The guy's been lame for 40 years. And God suspends natural law, heals his legs and feet, and he walks and leaps and runs. God has that kind of power to suspend natural law. God has the power also to, over our circumstances. And I love this. One of my favorite occurrences is in Acts 8 because it's so much what happens today similar to this. Philip is in... In Samaria, which is north of Jerusalem, he's there. An angel shows up and speaks to Philip and says, I want you now to go down to this road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so it's a several hours trip, and so Philip travels for several hours. He, he intersects the road from Jerusalem to Gaza just in time to encounter this guy in a chariot that's from Ethiopia, from Africa. He, he goes up to the guy at the Spirit's prompting, And the guy just happens to read of all the scrolls of the Old Testament. He happens to have the scroll of Isaiah. Of all of those scrolls, he has Isaiah. And he has it open to the very small piece that's Isaiah 53. It is the clearest picture of what Jesus will come and do. 
And the guy's reading that and says to Philip, can you tell me what this means? And Philip says, let me tell you about Jesus. It's just what you read in Isaiah that was written 700 years before. The guy trusts Jesus and is baptized and eternity is changed for him. I mean, God has control over our circumstances in our life. Back uh, many, many years ago when I um, was quitting the oil business, we had, we had one quick thousand-mile trip to Wilmore, Kentucky, where I would go to seminary. We had to find a house, a place to live while we were there. We'd trek back home, get our two sons, and then make a move. So uh, we get to Wilmore, Kentucky. Never seen it before. This was pre-Google Maps, so we had no idea what the town was like. We get to a stoplight. Marie says randomly, just turn left here. So we turn left there. We drive a short distance, cross some tracks, and we see a a for rent sign at a house. We get out, we look at the house and look through the windows and think, mm, man, it's, it's really small, but it could maybe work. And Marie tries the back door, it's unlocked. And so we go in and we walk around it and we think, we could make this work. It's, it's, it's bare, bare minimum, really small, we could make this work. So we call the phone number on the sign. We meet with the guy that night and, uh, and, and sign a contract with him. And he says this, he said, um, I've had that house ready to rent for weeks now, but God said, don't put up the sign. So for weeks now, I've had this house empty, no revenue coming to me. And for weeks, I've been waiting. And this very morning, God said, put up the sign now. And, and so we drive in. Marie says, take a left. We drive by. We see the sign. And then we find out that there are only two houses in the whole town to rent. That's one of them. And God God has power in the circumstances of our lives. I, I had this small window to, to quit the oil business. There was a, a, a voluntary um, like severance package offered. We could quit and actually get a severance package. And there was this tiny window, second week of October, to take it. And I took it. I, I signed the dotted line, second week of October. But in all my plans I had made about how we would fund seminary and everything... For some reason, I thought I would, like I would quit one day, my paycheck ends, the next day I start seminary. And, and the funds were, they were planned out to the penny. And so it's the second week of October, I'm thinking, oh man, classes don't start till January, which was mistaken. They actually didn't start till the second week of February. At three months, and I'm thinking, we're going to burn all this money. It, it's been planned to the penny. And then my company extends my pay for six weeks by surprise and then they extend it for five weeks by surprise and they extend it for a few more weeks by surprise and and finally second week of February I'm walking to my first class and all of a sudden by the spirit's prompting I start doing the math about how long I actually got paid and I was paid to the day before class began three months I I had no idea I was clueless God knew I mean, God has the power to intersect our circumstances and to meet every single need that we have. He has that kind of power. That's the God that we serve. I could give you many, many more areas. Above all, power over death. Our entire faith is based upon Jesus dying and rising and alive today, right? He has power over death, and he promises to raise everyone from the dead, all that believe in him, to life eternal in heaven. That's the power that he promises. Okay, so... Scripture says God has all power. The $10 word is omnipotent. He's omnipotent. He has this infinite power. But, but if, you, if you believe that, 
You also have to know there are times that God withholds that infinite power. If you don't understand that, you'll be caught off guard. Your faith will be blown out of the water. There are times that God withholds his infinite power. We understand not, not all evil is averted, correct? Not all natural disasters are withheld. Not all illnesses are healed. We understand that, don't we? Why, why is that? We have to understand God's end game what he's after. He's not primarily after our comfort and ease. There are times he gives us comfort and ease, but that's not his primary end game. He doesn't use his power. He doesn't exhaust uh, the applications of power toward our comfort and ease. He does it for three things. One is this. It's to bring us into relationship with himself. He uses his power to bring us into relationship with himself, which means coming to a point of, of placing our faith in Jesus. And saying to Christ, I understand you You." died, you rose, you're alive. Would you forgive my sins, lead my life? He, he expends his power to bring us into relationship with himself. He expends his power to make us like Jesus. He, he uses power on this planet in our lives to make us more like Jesus. And finally, he uses his power to give us heaven one day. And those three things, I mean, that's his end game. And sometimes he allows evil or natural disaster or illness to bring about that end game to bring people to him, to grow people up to be like Jesus, to bring heaven for people. I'll give you some examples. Book of Genesis, first book of the Bible, you read through it. Uh, there's, a, there's a family, uh, Jacob's the dad of this family. There are 12 sons that Jacob has. One is named Joseph. Uh, the bulk of the other sons are jealous of Joseph, and the day comes, they, they do this horrific evil thing. They sell Joseph into slavery, which meant he would have uh, this very brief, horrific life of labor, which would, would prematurely end his life. It probably would have been kinder just to kill him, but they sold him into slavery, so it'd be this uh, like, torturous work of slavery, which would quickly end his life in. A very, very evil thing to do. God didn't stop it. I mean, God didn't prevent it from happening. But Joseph gets to Egypt, and God raises him up to great power, God shows them there'll be seven years of great uh, abundance, followed by seven years of famine. And so Joseph leads the country. They, they preserve and they, they store up uh, huge food supplies. The time comes that his 11 siblings and his father are starving to death. If it weren't for Joseph and what God had done with Joseph out of slavery, the 11 brothers and the dad would have died. There wouldn't have been... 12 tribes of Israel, there would have been one tribe. It had been Joseph. I mean, God didn't, he didn't prevent the evil. Why? He had a bigger plan. It was, it was this plan to bring people to him and change people and give them, do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, he doesn't, he doesn't avert all evil. Likewise, he doesn't withhold all natural disaster. Uh, April 18, 1906, over 100 years ago in San Francisco, California, Northern California, there's uh, an earthquake that's 8.0 on the Richter scale, horrific earthquake in San Francisco. You've heard of it, I'm sure. 3,000 people died in the earthquake. A quarter of a million left homeless in the earthquake. God did not prevent it from happening. It was this horrific tragedy that happened on April the 18th of 06, but nine days earlier on April 9th of 06, not in San Francisco, but 400 miles south in Los Angeles on Azusa Street, 
on April the 9th, there's a small gathering that begins. There's this guy talking about Jesus, and there's this spark of revival that begins on April the 9th. And for nine days, the spark is gradually growing and spreading. It's still a very, very small thing. On the ninth day, there's this massive earthquake that kills people and, and leaves people homeless. And there's this fear that sweeps the entire West Coast. And people realize the truth that life is brief. Life is brief, and it comes to an end. And this little tiny revival on Azusa Street, it's like pouring gasoline on the fire. And the revival explodes. And there are people all up and down the coast that are coming to know Jesus. And now 111 years have passed, and the revival is still continuing. The ripple is still going today. It's, it's what happened in the 20th century. It's the... It's a Pentecostal revival that occurred in the 20th century. It's still going today. It's rippling through Asia now. It's rippling through Africa and most of all through South America. 111 years later, the estimates of how many have come to know Jesus from this revival range anywhere from 300 million to 600 million people. It's a horrible natural disaster. God had the power to stop it, but he didn't. Why? He has an end game in mind. What's the end game? Bring everyone who will, bring them into relationship with him. And when they're in a relationship, then make them more and more like your son Jesus, and then someday give them heaven. Every illness is not healed. Healed. Uh, Harry is uh, a friend of mine. Um, he and I clicked. There's some people like that where you just begin to talk, and, and there's a, almost a brotherhood that's there. He's a friend of mine. Harry was in the hospital. Harry's, some of families, Harry's family worships here. He was in the hospital, and um, he had become one of my top three. It's a term we use around here about how God would prompt us that know Jesus to you know, people in our orbit and our life, that, that they might be people that God would want to use us to introduce them to Jesus as well. So he was my friend. He was one of my top three. And so Harry's in the hospital, so I, I'm visiting Harry, and first time we're in the hospital there, I, I start to talk about God, and Harry says, no, I, no talk about God. And we talk about the lawn and lawn care and baseball, all the stuff we love, no God. And so I, I honor that, and more visits and different times I would start to talk about God, and, and it was always no, no God, and I, I always honored that. There was a day I went to see him, and he had made a bad turn for the worse, and he knew it. And so I began to talk about God again, and he let me talk. And so I told him about Jesus knowing him and coming to the planet for him and dying to pay the price for his sins and rising from the dead for him and being present in that very room for him. And Jesus calling out to him, saying, give your life to me. Ask me to forgive you. I'm waiting. I'll do it. And give me leadership, I'll, I'll, I'll take leadership of your life. And when I was done, I said, what do you want to do about that? And he said, isn't it too late? I, I burned all these years. <laughs> Why would he take me now? And I said, it's not too late as long as you have one breath left. And so there was this authentic prayer of saying, Jesus, please forgive all my sins. And like, what's left of it? My life is yours. Authentic prayer. And uh, I left, and later that day, a couple of his kids came by, and, and he told both of them. He said, today, 
I, I gave my life to Jesus today. That night he went into a coma, a motionless coma, for two days. And the end of the second day, there's a couple of family members in the room. And all of a sudden, Harry sits straight up in bed. I throws his arms heavenward. His eyes open, clear as can be, and holds there for this long moment. And his body falls back to the bed, and Harry steps into heaven. Folks, that's not normal. <laughs> Have you seen people slip from coma into death? That, that is not normal. There was this illness that, that Harry had, and God has power over all illness. It's nothing to him. But God didn't heal Harry. Or did he? <laughs> Gave him the ultimate healing, didn't he? He said, man, I'm going to heal your soul. I'm going to heal your spirit. I'm going to give you eternity with me. And then out of God's grace, and God showed his family so his family wouldn't spend the rest of their years wondering, like, was it for real? All those years, like, Dad was a bunch of decades, couldn't even talk about God. Was it for real? I think out of God's great kindness, (laughs) I think God just said to that body, okay, time to sit up, buddy. (laughs) Okay, pick the arms up, buddy. Open the eyes. We're going to show them this is real, man. God has all power, all power. Let me go back. God has promised this to every human being. If we follow his son, Jesus, he will give you life to the fullest. He'll give you the best possible life. He's promised that. He's promised he will meet every single need you have. He's promised heaven someday. Do you believe he has the power to deliver? Do you believe that? Or do you find yourself sometimes hedging on that when it comes down to the details, the everyday life part of it? i give you some examples. Maybe it'll stir other thoughts in your mind that the Spirit might prompt for you. He has this, God has this very narrow structure of how he wants humankind to live out sexuality. And he says, trust me, I will give you the best life. And have you ever found yourself thinking, I... I want the best life. He doesn't have the power to give me that if I follow his guidelines. I'm going to have to work around him because I want the best life. I can't really trust him. He doesn't have the power to give me the best life if I do it his way. Or maybe it's around loving an enemy and there's someone that hates your guts and he's saying, go love them. And you're thinking, I, I want the best life. I don't want that mess. And you're, and you're really beginning to question, does he really have the power to give me the best life? If I love my enemies, I, won't I get shredded? So I'll do a workaround. I, I just, I'll kind of sidestep that one. I, I won't love my enemies that way. Or, or maybe it's around his promise to meet every single need you have. Follow me, he says, I'll meet every need you have. How many of you find yourself working far too many hours your family getting far too little of you because you're thinking, I have to meet their needs. Because you don't really believe God has power to meet them. If you do things his way, you think, I got to do a workaround. No way God can meet my needs unless I, I, have, to, I have to do it. They'll have to pay the price because I'm going to meet their needs. I have to do it. 
Or maybe it's not working too many hours. Maybe it's when it comes to the expense account. You would never call it cheating. You would call it cutting corners. But you're thinking, I've got to meet my needs. I can't do it God's way. I want the best life. He, he, he doesn't have the power to deliver if I do it his way. Or maybe it's the income tax. I'm getting close now. Maybe it's the income tax. And you're thinking, no one will know. Only, only me and God. But I've got to meet my family's needs. But what about what God says in Malachi? He says, you cheat God by not giving the tithe he commands you to give. And how many of you are thinking, but i got to meet my needs. <laughs> I don't think you really have the power to do it. If I do it your way, I don't think you have the power to meet my needs. Like, if I do it your way, like we're going to crash and burn. Hmm. These are ways to, to wrestle with how you can grow in knowing the power of God. If you found yourself thinking, I, man, I'm, I'm doing some workarounds, maybe not the ones I mentioned, maybe others. You're thinking, I, I've not been trusting God because I don't think he'll deliver. <laughs> I, I don't think he'll deliver on the best life and meeting my needs in heaven, so I'm going to do a workaround. These are ways to grow in knowing the power of God. One is this, give you four things, practical things. Live in Scripture. Live in Scripture. This is what I mean by that. So much of Scripture just conveys historical events of what happened with real people in their lives. And when you're reading those historical events, put yourself in those pages. Imagine you were there. Suppose it's, it's the Exodus. Suppose you're standing in front of that great sea, and you see the enemy coming. You're thinking, it's, we're toast, we're done. Imagine you're there, and all of a sudden the sea parts before your eyes. And you put a foot out, and all of a sudden it's dry land. And, and you and the two to three million others, you scurry across the other side, and you look back, and, and the enemy's coming across that dry seabed, and all of a sudden from nowhere this water crashes down and drowns them. Now put yourself there. It happened. Not a fairy tale. It really happened. Put yourself there. Or put yourself there with the man 40 years lame. Imagine he was your neighbor. Imagine 40 years you've been helping him, you've been carrying him, you've been bringing food to him, you've been giving financial support to him for 40 years, and you're standing there, and this guy named Peter brings up the name of Jesus who was just executed and says in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk, and, and your neighbor leaps to his feet. Not afraid it happened. Or better yet, imagine that you are in this upper room with 11 people that had followed the guy executed. <laughs> and it's Sunday night. And they're fearful and distraught, and they think it's, it's all over. And no door opens, and suddenly Jesus is there. Put yourself there. It happened. Live in the Scriptures. Live in the Scriptures. Let God show you Help you know the power of God. Second thing is this. Relive times God has shown his power in your life. Relive times God has shown his power in your life. A bunch of you in this room, he's shown his power to you. If you think for a few moments, you'll think of some of the times he's shown his power to you. Relive those times. Relive those times consistently. Go back to those again and again. Remember the power he's already shown you. Back in 1992, it was the first year of seminary, uh, Marie and I realized we, we need to remember what he's done 
the road ahead, we, we can't forget the power of God is real. And so we set aside an entire week that October. Spend the entire week remembering the times God showed his power to us. And now for 25 years, we set aside that same week every October. But if he's, worked, if he's ever worked in your life, relive that. Remember that. Let God show you that his power is still real. Third thing is this, is live in vibrant Christian community. Live in vibrant Christian community. Around here, that, that most likely means be part of a small group here at the harbor. If you're in this vibrant small group, then it's just a matter of time before God shows his power in someone's life in the group and you hear about it. And if there are eight or 10 or 12 of you, then you'll hear again and again and again. You'll be reminded of the power of God and your faith will grow. You'll begin to know, to know he can deliver on every promise. And then final thing is this, is pray and, and ask God to show you his power uh, or pray, and as my friend Bob says, when you pray this prayer, then hide and watch, because he's going to deliver on this prayer. But this is what Paul would say to a church in Ephesus. He would say, it's Ephesians 1, 19 to 23. I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. He has all power for our benefit. And the church is his body, which is made full and complete by Christ, who fills all things everywhere with himself. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, you know what your mistake is? You don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. Friends, may that not be true of us. May we be people that increasingly, as long as we breathe, increasingly know the scriptures, increasingly know the power of God, and know he will deliver on every single promise he makes. Father in heaven, you know, you know where we're at, Father. And I know there are a lot of people in this room you're just encouraging because, because they do know. They do know your promises. They do know your power to deliver. And, and, and they, they hear what you say. And when it's, a, when it's a costly command, they trust you. And they go there. And they know in the outcome they get the best life by doing that. But, Father, there may be a bunch of us here, a bunch of us, that you are stirring within us. And there's a, there's a moment of conviction, but there's a giant sense of hope in it that we can become people that not only we know what the Scriptures say, we can become that, but we can become people that know you have all power and know that in your infinite power, you will meet every single promise, and we will live with abandon for you. We'll be the kind of people that can say, whatever you say, God, whatever you say. I don't care what the cost appears to be, what the cost may be, I will trust you. I'm yours. I'll follow with abandon. Father, I pray that might be us. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>